Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Jesus wanted to do from the Gospels. And I would like to suggest to you that St. Matthew wouldn't agree with that. So what I'd like to do is discover with you something about what St. Matthew gives us to describe what Jesus thought he was doing. As he comes into Jerusalem in the days leading up to his Passion if you like, the central framework for our Lenten worship. Our passage starts, And when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find an ass tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. That's a pretty deliberate set of instructions. He asks for an ass and a colt. He is asking them to find the elements to reenact the prophet Zephaniah. In other words, he knows what he's doing. (laughs) The funny thing, of course, is that because it's St. Matthew, where in Zephaniah it says an ass and the colt of a foal or the foal of a colt, Um, it quite clearly is a Hebrew way of talking about one donkey, whereas St. Matthew gives us two, thereby leading one to wonder what what kind of circus act it must have been like for Jesus to be riding two donkeys, particularly of unequal heights, since one is presumably smaller than the other. But anyhow, the other evangelists uh, interpret Zephaniah in the more straightforward sense, that it's two ways of referring to the same beast. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on an ass, and on a colt, the foal of an ass. Okay, so there is Zephaniah prophesying the arrival of the promised Davidic king. And this is going to be the key word in our passage, Davidic, son of David, I will ask you several questions as I talk today, and the answer to all of them will be David. Okay, remember that. If you are tempted to give me any other answer, you flunked. Okay, the answer is going to be David throughout, basically. So what is Jesus doing? He's turning up on the Mount of Olives, the place at which the Messiah was expected. He's choosing two or perhaps one four-legged critter in order to stage a humble entrance 
into Jerusalem, following Zephaniah, and he's fulfilling the Davidic promise. So the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them, and brought the ass and the colt and put their garments on them, and he sat thereon. No explanation of the, uh, the size problem. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Okay, this is weird. They were clearly engaged in some sort of tabernacles procession, procession for the Feast of Tabernacles. The problem was that it was the wrong time of year for the Feast of Tabernacles. Why on earth were they doing that? Aha! This is something which we've only got to discover quite recently. There were two calendars working at the same time. There was the old calendar from the time of the first temple, the calendar at which the Feast of Atonement had been the most important date, and then there was the new calendar from the time of the second temple for which the Feast of Passover was the important date. And a bit like modern-day Christian and Jewish calendars, they didn't always coincide. So in some years, as we have it, Passover is not at all the same as Easter. And in some years, they're the same weekend, right? Well, you have something similar going on there. Jesus had in fact been waiting, and St. John's Gospel brings this out quite clearly. He's in fact been waiting for the only occasion within about 10 or 15 years when the Feast of the Atonement and the Feast of the Passover were going to be the same weekend. It's very important to understand what he's doing and why he's doing it now. So he comes in, they're celebrating tabernacles, which is a feast with strong Davidic overtones, announcing the arrival of the Davidic king. And the crowds going before him, and that followed him, shouted, guess what? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In other words, they got the message that this was a tabernacle's procession in honor of the Davidic king, but eh, according to the old calendar. And when he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? It says stirred. That's uh, a nice word. Remember, Jerusalem was a city that ran on two principal financial bases, the uh, temple and tourism, <laughs> meaning all the people who came to take part in the, the feasts. Of course, the two were thoroughly linked together. So here is a bunch of people who are engaging in the wrong pilgrimage for the wrong time. This is muddling for people who have quite a clear set of calendars for when particular groups come for particular feasts, as you can imagine. So they're saying, what's this bunch of nutheads doing? <laughs> Celebrating the wrong feast at the wrong time. And the crowd said, this is the prophet, Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. As though that were some kind of, you know, exculpatory thing. Oh yeah, they're the sort of people who, you know, who might get the, the date wrong, because we know that some of them uh, do remember the old calendar and things like that. In other words, the announcement is being made partly as an explanation for why this out-of-time procession. No one has yet twigged to the fact that Jesus wanted to celebrate and would celebrate the Feast of the Atonement and the Feast of Passover on the same day. 
things, as St. John rather beautifully brings out. So Jesus enters the temple of God and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. So we all think, ooh, here he is engaged in a, an act of you know, righteous, uh, what would be the righteous vigilantism? Let's think of some suitable modern American equivalent. Occupy Wall Street, that kind of thing. Um, and he's driving out these wicked tax collectors and people, all of whom, of course, were thoroughly exploiting the fact that you needed to buy the beasts, and yet they could only be bought with holy money, temple money. And so poor people had to spend their hard-earned living on expensive beasts so as to fit in with the temple system. Mm, no doubt there was some of that, but that's actually not what was going on, and we can tell that from the reaction of the authorities to when Jesus does this. Do they send in the armed guards? Does temple SWAT come in and conduct a, a raid? No, none of that. Jesus does his act, which must have been of limited if you like, violence, because there was no official response. And the next day, the authorities say, by what authority do you do these things? In other words, they knew exactly what he was doing. He was fulfilling the very end of the prophet Zechariah. If you look at actually the last verse of the last chapter of the prophet Zechariah in the Bible, it says, on that day there shall be no traders in the temple. <laughs> and no one will carry goods through the temple one way or another. And the on that day is the last of a whole series of promises of what was going to happen on the day of the destruction of the temple. Let's remember that it was absolutely common understanding, part of very well popularized expectation at the time, that in the 10th Jubilee, as it was called. That's the tenth period of 49 years after the Second Temple had been founded in 426 BC. But in the tenth Jubilee, at the beginning of the tenth Jubilee, the great priest prophet would come and perform the definitive sacrifice. And at the end of the tenth Jubilee, the temple would be destroyed. So the whole question of who is the priest prophet who's going to come and perform the sacrifice and does this mean the destruction of the temple, was not an academic question. It was very much part of the popular vibe. What's going to happen? When? Is this the person? Is this not? How do we tell? So, Jesus performs this act, which is basically a prophetic gesture announcing the end of the temple. He's saying, I'm hereby enacting, this is out. And he then reads the sentence. After having formally enacted the end of the temple, he then reads the sentence. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, which is Isaiah's prophecy of the new temple. But you make it a den of robbers, which is Jeremiah's denunciation of the temple that he knew, and which is followed immediately in the next verse by words to the effect that you will not find stone left upon stone, I will leave your temple like the sanctuaries of old. In other words, it's quite clear what Jesus is doing, saying, no more temple. They get that. Then it says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. 
Well, nowadays, that little verse, we think, hmm, how sweet. Isn't it nice? In between all this dramatic stuff, he conducted a little, little surgery uh, for the blind and the lame. But no, this is far more significant than that, because what were the blind and the lame doing in the temple? They weren't allowed there. Guess who had forbidden them from entering the temple? Yes, well done. 2 Samuel 5, even though the temple hadn't yet been built, in 2 Samuel 5, David is in the process of conquering the Jebusite city that would become Jerusalem, and he has some trouble getting his soldiers up the water conduits that were going to enable him to conquer the place, and it was because, it was said, the blind and the lame were gathered around the top. And so he gets, how shall we say, small-minded with the blind and the lame, and says, they shall not have the place in the temple forever. Okay, so what is Jesus doing in the temple? Healing the blind and the lame. He's fulfilling the prophecy of David. Because there are two ways of obeying David's commandment. One is to remove all blind and lame people from the temple. And the other is to remove the blindness and lameness of the people who are in the temple. You see that Jesus prefers the friendlier version. But again, the point is, David's commandment is being fulfilled. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, now, by wonderful things, we don't think, oh, Lord, this is just so wonderful. No. <laughs> they mean the sacred things that were fulfilling the prophecies. <laughs> they began to get worried. So they, they said they, and they heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of? Thank you. They were indignant. They're saying, uh-oh, uh -oh, you know, we're in trouble here. Here's someone who is rocking our boat. And so they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? In other words, are you really determined to cause up trouble? And Jesus says to them, this is my favorite answer of Jesus's. Jesus says to them, yes. <laughs> As in whatever, have you never read out of the mouths and sucklings thou hast brought perfect praise? And who wrote that line? Yes, that's Psalm 8. Well done. So leaving them, he went out to Bethany and lodged there. In other words, no trouble with SWAT not even the temple police, they all understood perfectly well what he was doing. He was enacting the Davidic signs that he was the Davidic heir, the promised priest, king, prophet figure who was going to perform the final sacrifice. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves only. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Poor fig tree, eh? This incidentally, as I'm sure you all know, is the, uh, the place where a very slight misreading uh, caused the uh, Topeka church of the Baptists of Topeka, Fred Phelps's church, to get it one wrong. It's, it's quite clear from this that God hates figs. That's an, that's an I. Uh, an I, okay? God hates figs. Um, 
seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went into it and found nothing on it but leaves only. No fruit ever come from you again. Okay, so what's he done? He's seen a symbol of the temple. The temple was this beautiful thing with wonderful decorations, just like a fig tree that has beautiful leaves providing a great deal of shade, but no fruit. He says the temple is like that. It's just all this beauty, but it's not actually producing any of the things, mercy, justice, goodness, that it's supposed to produce. So, in other words, in the fig tree, he repeats the message of the temple has been brought to an end. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly, I tell you, if you have faith and never doubt, you'll not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, pointing over his shoulder, at what mountain? What was the only mountain that they might actually see from there? The Temple Mount. It was the obvious mountain that was just there. Be taken up and cast into the sea. It will be done. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. In other words, he's filling out what he'd announced concerning Isaiah's uh, sentence on the temple. My house shall be called a house of prayer. He said, you are going to be the temple. That old one, it's as if it's been thrown into the sea. Wherever you come together and learn to pray or to forgive, you will be the new temple. They are being asked to prepare for the new temple that Jesus is founding. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. And he said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, please notice, this is not a dumb question. This is a very good question. The temple authorities were not stupid. They were perfectly aware of what the prophecies were. They had to fend off any number of charlatans and goons who were announcing this, that, and the other, saying they were the Messiah, that this was all about to happen. They had to do all this in the middle of the presence of the Romans, where it was indeed awfully likely that someone would come and destroy the temple, as in fact happened. So you can understand that they naturally were sensitive. Their first reaction was, it's not possible, but it's because it's possible, we need to check <laughs> that your credentials are in order, sir. <laughs> so, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And now we come to one of the really interesting parts of this. Because Jesus is now going to attempt very, very gently to answer that question for them in a way that they could understand it, but which is not immediately going to produce the reaction of, ah, he's a blasphemer, we must kill him. It would have been perfectly easy for Jesus to say, by my authority, <laughs> and because I am. <clears throat> Stone throwing. Okay, that would have been the, the immediate reaction to that. And they would never have learned anything. So what we're now going to watch is the very, very subtle process of Jesus engaging in trying to teach people to work out for themselves who he is. So he doesn't answer them directly. He says, I will ask you a question. And if you tell me an answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Again, he's not being nasty with this. He's saying, okay, you want me to tell you that I am doing this because I am. 
that will immediately put us into a very, very difficult position. So, if you are able to be complicit with that understanding, then I will tell you. So he asks them, the baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or from men? And they argued with one another, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we're afraid of the multitude, for all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. You see what their answer says? They get the point immediately. He's putting them into a place where they're between a rock and a hard place. If they say one thing, they'll get jumped on by some people, and if they say another, they'll be jumped on by other people. So they'd rather say they don't know. In other words, we have considered your question, and we do not want to be put into a hard place. So we're going to say we don't know. So Jesus says, okay, then I'm not going to answer you either. At least understand <laughs> that the reason for that here is that we're both, we both run the, the risk of being in a hard place. But then rather than going off in a huff, which he might have done if he were in a bad mood, and remember that many people interpret these passages as though this was a collection of bearded, wily coyotes trying to trap Jesus the roadrunner, you know that Jesus the roadrunner has to say meet meet to them and, and dash by. But that's actually not the case at all. Jesus is very clearly trying to give them the possibility to learn who he is. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, went. But afterwards, he repented and went. And he went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, in what I call the Homer Simpson interpretation of scripture, duh, the first. Now please notice, this is actually the easiest parable in the Bible. Really the easiest. And that's the whole point of it. An enormous amount of ink is uh, spilt on this parable as though it were tremendously difficult. But it isn't. Jesus' whole point is, you can work this out for yourselves, you know. That's what he's doing. He's saying, yeah, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? One says don't, but does. And the other says do, but doesn't. You know which one is actually doing the will of his father. So, Jesus says to them, okay, you can answer it. And then he goes back to his question about John the Baptist. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the harlots believed him. In other words, they who had said won't did but you, even when you saw it, you did not afterward repent and believe him. You who had said, I will do, then didn't. But when the matter is explained to you in a simple parable, you get it at once. You can work this out for yourselves, you know. <laughs> you will be able to answer this question of who I am and by what authority. If you think about that gap 
the gap between how well you understand and how little you put in practice. And he then comes to the final parable in this series. But for that, I will have to invite you to tune in to the same bat channel at the same bat time tomorrow. Remember the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Calvary Podcast theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.